Football Clichés is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Break up the music. Charge your glass. This nation is going to dance all night. Have you ever wondered what the managerial merry-go-round might look like? David O'Leary sat in his little kiosk, wearily pressing the start button. Alan Pardew dropping his ice cream on the floor. Alan Kerbishley on a bright pink horse. Tim Sherwood and Tony Pulis fighting over the last remaining cartoon car. And Mark Hughes just stood in the queue looking thoroughly fed up with it all. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. I'm thrilled to unveil this week's guests, my two dead men walking, here to talk all about the language of football management. First of all, Jack Pickbrook, a man who has read all 65 pages and the appendix of the FA's written reasons for suspending Daniel Sturridge. How was that? Honestly, it was great. It was uh, it's a weird mix of like legalese as they say and genuinely fascinating and in some cases hilarious detail alongside you is david walker the athletics audio supremo who's who's won his race against time to be fit for today's podcast Uh, you were hailed by one listener last week dave as a superb addition how do you feel about that well it's very flattering (laughs) i I did ask you to reveal who that was because it was a whatsapp wasn't it yeah it was yeah yeah it must be someone you know yeah just just some guy i know neil critchley left his role as liberal's under 23 manager to go and join blackpool uh, which left a vacancy to fill um among the favorites were various youth coaches at liverpool chabby alonso robbie fowler and the athletics james pierce (laughs) who was a mere 501 shot somebody will have put money on him though at least one person in this country will have bet like a pound on that i bet i feel like the only man with inside knowledge would be the athletics james pierce so (laughs) i I guess but i feel like he's a you know he's a upstanding guy and he's probably beyond that sort of stuff he just he just gets the club he just gets the club (laughs) that's true that's true he actually fulfills the criteria of getting the club i think anyone gets the club more than james pierce second of all uh, this was a really novel uh passage of play uh Matteo Guendouzi was booked for sarcastically placing the ball for a free kick against Portsmouth in the FA Cup. Uh, I've never seen this before. Uh, can you, should you be booked for out-sarcasming Mike Dean? I don't know. It reminds it. It's hard. I can't think of a precedent for it. The, the two things that pop into my head are one, the famous Wayne Rooney sarcastic applause. Yeah. The legendary sarcastic applause. Yeah. Um, and the other was, I remember Kevin Horlock was once sent off for Manchester City for aggressively walking. <laughs> <laughs> I actually can't remember the game. I think it was in the what is now League One season, ninety-eight, ninety-nine. <laughs> Just trying to picture the game. In what context? So I think he was aggressively walking towards a referee 
or maybe right. towards an opponent after a decision. I actually should have double checked before uh, I came on air. Yeah, please, please yeah. tweet us in. Aggr- so sorry, it's just popped up here. Aggressive walking against Bournemouth. Yeah, ninety eight, ninety nine. So in the third tier. Uh, you do not aggressively walk against Bournemouth or anybody else. <laughs> yes. Especially weird, Mike I thought, <laughs> Was he the ref? What's the point of being in League One if you can't walk aggressively? <laughs> I think the interesting thing about this Guendouzi yellow card is that it, it wasn't an obvious act of dissent because the, the, the Rooney applause thing was for a decision against him and, and Rooney yeah. said, yeah, well done, referee, which is you know an open and shut case of dissent. That's fair enough. But in this case, Arsenal had won the free kick and I think they'd taken it too quickly. And all Guendouzi did was pick the ball up, sort of... Hold it up in the air and then place it down very deliberately. And yes, it was kind of obviously sarcastic, but a bookable offence, Dave. I mean, he's he has done the thing that he was supposed to do. Yeah. So I suppose it's like the the footballing equivalent, disciplinary equivalent of like when you know your mum or your partner asks you to do something. Mm. And you, you say I've done it. No, but I want I want you to want to do it. I've I've taken the fine. Visa. I will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's basically that. Yeah. We are here to talk about the language of football management and just the unique little quirks that come with being a football manager because it's a very stressful job. I, I can't understand why anyone would want to do this. Um, and the most visible part of this is press conferences where this is where we really go face to face with a manager, and we have to hear their inner thoughts. Uh, Jack, I put it to you that a manager's first press conference is the easiest crowd in the world. Like a best man speech. Yeah, it is like a best man speech. Managerial unveiling press conferences are always about setting your stall out and defining yourself as what kind of manager you want to be. And so they're often quite memorable. Like, you know, Mourinho... Actually, I don't, was the Mourinho special one at his unveiling? Or was that just at the start of the More season? More or less, I think it was. More yeah, or less. Yeah. But I remember quite... There was... God, uh, I remember Antonio Conte at Chelsea in 2016. I mean, Chelsea effectively have one of these every year. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Conte, Chelsea 2016, he was talking about how, I think he said he was the tailor man in, in the sense that he yeah. didn't have a philosophy. He would tailor his oh, his playing style according to the players that he yeah. had. Uh, obviously, Jose coming back in 2013. I think it was the humble one or the happy one. The happy one. The I happy think. one. Yeah. Um, I remember AV, I think I did AVB in 2011. Uh, and it, I, I think he said that the team one he or said, the group he, one. He said the group one. The group which one. Is, it's rubbish. Which is terrible. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, sh- we should have known. I mean, that was back when everybody thought AVB was a genius. We should have yeah. known when he said that, that it wasn't <laughs> going to work out. Uh, hopefully, hopefully that strand of, of reporting on, on a Chelsea unveiling has run its course. I don't want to hear that, the one, the, anymore. We say that the, the opening press conference is this clean slate and, and, and it's the easiest crowd in the world. But um, an extension of that is when a mobile phone goes off in a press conference. It's like Perrier award level comedy. Why? Why are every? Why is everyone so amused by a mobile phone going off in a press conference? Why I, is it so funny? I think it's because the dominant tone of football manager press conferences is school. It's like <laughs> it's like being at school. It's yep. I mean, it's not always like that, but you've got you know it, it's very male. So particularly for, for those of us who went to all boys schools, mm. it's very reminiscent of that. There's lots of like. There's lots of kind of silly banter, for want of a better word. And so when somebody does something wrong or there's always a bit of, ooh, <laughs> that kind of thing. Like that, that, that atmosphere exists in these environments. And lots of, you know, football reporting is a lot like school a lot of the time. And I think that that is why, because it's such a kind of silly, trivial thing to go wrong. That's why it produced this kind of, ah, so reaction. Have you ever done it? Your phone ever gone off in a press conference? Uh, no, I don't think it has. I th- the thing is, I get really, I get really annoyed when people 
The problem is that iPhones have a voice recorder function, a, a voice recorder app. So in the good old days, everybody had. Well, in the good old days, people had uh, would shorthand it all, and then dictaphones came along, and people would put their dictaphone and their voice recorder yep. in front of the manager. Whereas now that iPhones have a voice recorder app, you can just put your your iPhone in. But the problem is that if you haven't put it on on airplane mode, then that means that you're getting all the kind of data and signal and and whatever coming in and, and that actually disrupt as well as causing the risk of someone's phone going off those data signals also interfere with the dictaphone so there's nothing worse than when you're trying to transcribe three <laughs> minutes of pochettino to hear what he has to say about you dembele or whatever annoyed. i am really annoyed that i am really brook. annoyed yeah yeah so and you're um, trying to transcribe it and sorry and yep. then and then you get this kind of <laughs> and then you get this kind of like annoying kind of like uh, distraction noise, which means you can't hear it. And so, I, 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 in past, after press conferences, I've had to say, "Look, can you please put your iPhones on airplane mode if you're going to use them as voice recorders for this press conference? Because otherwise, you're going to ruin everyone else's recording." <laughs> but I feel like the peak of this comedy, uh, apparent comedy, is when the manager actually answers the phone, yeah. because this is when it goes into another stratosphere of comedy. So, a good example from this season is the is, our, is the much missed Unai Emery, who uh, who answered this journalist's um, phone. In this style, I have the respect for you, but when the the news isn't true, isn't true. It's yours. I don't know who is the, the phone. I am going to say, John Spencer. I can I can I can answer. Okay. Good morning. Good afternoon. Hi. I am Unai Emery. How are you? Yeah. We are working. Is. There's a few things that jump out at me about that clip. First, it's quite sad in a way. It's like looking back when everything was nice and rosy for, for Emery. He wasn't being harangued at his press conferences. And it's a shame that it wasn't like a pre-Europa League, Champions League evening press conference. Then he obviously could have said good evening uh, yeah. when answering the phone. I just... I just... The ripples of laughter at what is essentially a, a manager who who has no comedic ability here. He's simply answering a phone and, and he's saying whatever comes into his head. I just I, I just worry about how easily impressed our our football journalists are. Jack, I'm you know I'm I'm glad you're here to cast a more serious um, aspect to mobile phones being on in a press conference. But um, a man who is equally unimpressed with mobile phones going off in press conferences is Roy Keane, and this is how he once reacted. I think. Did he bend the rules a little bit? Yeah, but we see cheating going on all the time in games. Players diving. When I'm asked about it, I say, yeah, the game is full of it. But should it be stopped, the cheating? Yeah, of course. Nobody, nobody wants to cheat. Whose phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. It's my phone. Why don't you turn it off? No, that's the second time it's gone off. Why don't you put it on silent? No, it's not the second time. Why don't you turn it off? Well, I'll turn that off in a minute. Are you just going to let it ring? Well, I thought I'd let it ring out. All right, that's, that's good manners. <clears throat> Jack, that's the that's the right response to a mobile phone going off, correct? Completely, yeah. I I, I completely throw my weight behind Roy Keane's reaction to that. It, it is bad manners to leave your phone on in that kind of situation. It's a terrifying moment. Once is just about, you can just about forgive one person for getting to put their phone on. Yeah. The same person 
not sorting it out twice. It's an incredible... And with Roy, Roy Keane sitting I know, there. so it has all, has all the ingredients there, but, but the moment that phone starts ringing and, it, and his eyes sort of drift across to either the phone or the owner of the phone, and you know that guy is in real trouble. But um, but yeah, that was that was just the most tense moment, uh, and it's just such the other end of the spectrum to the high comedy that we otherwise see. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, budget, size and shape and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each hand-picked especially for you from our selection of 100 brands, including established names and -and up-and-coming designers. Try on everything at home and style with your other items in your wardrobe. You can then pay for what you love and send back the rest. For your stylist time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. Remember, you try before you buy. Delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co.uk forward slash athletic. Other aspects of press conferences I quite like is on Friday, and I feel like this is a Sky Sports News Friday tradition, is that the managers are each of the managers are asked this kind of general topical question. And uh, most recently, of course, it was coronavirus. And uh, they all gave sort of really kind of vague answers because when as soon as there are something that kind of transcends football they all kind of close ranks and it all gets a bit guarded and Steve Bruce um, kind of gave this answer he said well well, like everybody else we're, we're glued to the TV for where it's going to go next and let's hope it doesn't get any worse in this country and it's, just, it's all kind of like, oh, God, uh, yeah, just hope it all sorts itself out, really. And that basically is the conclusion for every question that they get asked like that on a Friday. Just hope it's all right. They, they have banned handshaking at their training ground, haven't they, Newcastle? <laughs> so maybe he's a bit more worried about it than we yeah. think. Yeah, well, I, I need to know Steve Bruce's verdict on the coronavirus. And Jurgen Klopp was asked about this last night. There's a clip that's going around around Twitter at the moment and Klopp kind of slaps down the question saying it doesn't matter what I think like yeah. I'm a football manager in a cap with a badge with a bad beard like you should ask the actual experts um which I think is like now the prevalent view but for me it always makes me think of Arsene Wenger because mm. um the, what I loved about Arsene Wenger press conferences is you could ask him anything yeah. whether it's Brexit or Macron or FFP or <laughs> doping or Qatar or any of these questions and it wouldn't feel like you were taking the piss. It would feel like I, you know, I actually want to know what Wenger thinks about Donald Trump or and whatever. He'd, he'd and start he'd all really of his answers. answers with "We live in a world yeah. where." Yeah, Wenger, like Wenger, kind of held himself. In Wenger's mind, he was a kind of amateur sociologist as well, and so there were so many question, answers which would start with "We live in a society of," or "We live in a world of." Mm. It's usually like "We live in a world of instant judgments," or mm. "We live in a world where everyone has an opinion," that kind of thing. But it was really interesting, like, and I, I, you know, we all felt really we wanted to know what he thought about stuff, and I, we kind of felt privileged to to be able to talk to Wenger about these massive topics. And there's not really, like, if. There's no one else in the Premier League who can really do that. Like the fact that even yeah. even Klopp kind of bats away the questions on that, and Pep doesn't Pep you know Pep has his own political issues to deal with. There's kind of no one else, and Mourinho doesn't get involved in politics. Yeah. Um. So there's kind of no one else who's filled that gap. Like that has died with Wenger, unfortunately. I feel like Sean Dyche might have a sort of a slightly sarcastic thing to say about coronavirus, sort of to you know breezily dismiss it but yeah I think we're, the Premier League is lacking a kind of wider world spokesman. The reporting of press conferences has kind of cultivated 
this set of phrases, angry managers can do three things. This is kind of a sliding scale of, of disappointment. You can lament, and I think lamenting is for kind of injuries and missed kind of missed opportunities lamenting our bad luck yeah bad luck is yeah. lamented and i think injuries are lamented bemoaning is missed chances you can oh, no no you bemoan an injury crisis i think that's just interesting how do we go then you perhaps ruining comes into the equation here i think bemoaning is more angry than ruining ruining just accepts it's like regret isn't it? ruining like accepts the state of the world whereas bemoaning is like i Wind- I, I wish things had turned out differently yeah yeah Ruing, you ruin missed chances. Types of mind games. Here we go. I, I put it to you that there are two types of mind games because it's a very complex phenomenon, mind games. I think it, it began with Ferguson and Wenger, I think, as a popular mainstream concept. The two types are kidology. Now, what is kidology? Because I, the yeah. other day I was on another podcast yeah. and I actually used the word. <laughs> and then afterwards I thought... I've actually got no idea what that word means. It's just a football word that popped into my head. I can tell you, kidology is a is a thread of mind games which is about bigging up the opposition to make them to lull them into a full sense of security. So it's a bit like uh, if the title race was a bit closer this season, it would be, it would be a bit like Guardiola saying Liverpool are favourites. Um, you know, uh, yeah, they're going to run away with it. There's nothing we can really do. All we can do is kind of just keep winning the games and see how it goes. But that's that's kidology. It's basically bigging up the opposition, saying they're great. Or like a manager going into a cup day saying they're the favourites. It's not us. It's not us. It's definitely them. They're the ones with all the pressure on them. So that's kidology. The other side is taunting. Taunting is where you you hammer the opposition. You 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 criticise them for something, and uh, and that's kind of the more active form of mind games and that's where kind of Ferguson was much of a taunter he would I remember the most exquisite quote I can remember from Ferguson was when Wenger had just arrived and he said he's come from Japan you know probably spat it out that was amazing Uh, the the best that's the best any human being has ever pronounced a word as far as I'm concerned and and that's to me was taunting I, I do wonder if if mind games really are a thing or are they just sort of declared retrospectively it's like when you look back and go that was a bit of mind games there or is it just managers talking and then we kind of frame it in the way that we like to we really don't have we don't really have mind games in the classic sense anymore no we really we don't have a managerial rivalry to speak Klopp and Pep there's they quite like each other there is an underlying mutual respect there Pep gets annoyed at some things but not really at people the last really really good one was Mourinho versus Conte a few years ago when, because uh, Conte hasn't liked Mourinho for a while, and he went off with an amazing rant where he described Mourinho as a little man in all circumstances, yeah, yeah. and criticised his in sense all of, circumstances. in all circumstances, <laughs> and criticised his sense of theatre, as in Mourinho's putting it all on, and how Mourinho had after Ranieri was sacked by Leicester in 2017, and Mourinho wore like got a track Man United tracksuit top with CR on to show his like solidarity with Ranieri and Conte hammered him for that as well and then (laughs) Mourinho in his own press conference responding to this says what never happened to me and will never happen is to be suspended for match fixing (laughs) we have examples there of managers taking charge of situations expressing themselves and and really kind of turning their narrative for their own means but uh, largely the other end of the managerial emotional spectrum is managers being quite helpless or in manager speak beleaguered (laughs) again just a word you just don't hear anywhere else so my question here Dave is when you hear the word beleaguered what manager do you think of who has the most beleaguered face I think 
Mark Hughes in recent times. Yes. Um, Google says he was first beleaguered in 2001 and he hadn't even retired from playing. Uh, <laughs> so he was still playing and managing. He was Wales manager and still playing, I think, at Blackburn. And that was the first citation of Mark Hughes being beleaguered. And according to Google, he's been beleaguered ever since. There are mentions of him being beleaguered every year since then. Who was the guy at Newcastle who took over for a bit? Um, Carver. John Carver. Yeah. Well, characters like that who you can't fault them for giving it a bash because they get offered the job, but they just clearly... They're beleaguered from day one, really. I don't think caretakers or interim managers can be beleaguered. Jack? Yeah, I agree. I know that one athletic colleague of ours was bollocked by West Ham United <laughs> for, for using the phrase beleaguered Sam Allardyce <laughs> in about 2014. <laughs> Never beleaguered. I reckon that's in six figures for Google Hits, beleaguered Sam Allardyce. Um, we asked our listeners to contribute um, their beleaguered managers. Barry White, and this is not the Barry White, um, but... It, um, a semi-friend of mine. Um, in a post-match presser, Steve Keane, once of Blackburn, the beleaguered Steve Keane, once said, I know the fans are hurting. I'm hurting. I want what the fans want. And Ajona replied, the fans want you out, Steve. <laughs> I think, I feel like that's the most beleaguered scene imaginable. A, a beleaguered manager, you know when they've hit peak beleaguered, is when their team are losing four or five nil, and it has to be four or five, and they're stood on the very, very extremities of their technical area and just stood there and it's, it's, it, there's an element of fronting up, but also helplessness. I'm standing here and I'm watching it. There's nothing I can do. As beleaguered as some managers are, I feel there are some aspects of their job that feel entirely unnecessary. Um, for example, do managers write their own programme notes, do you think? Because that just feels like a right pain. Every time I think of programme notes, I have this image of a manager in his office thinking, oh, fuck, sorry, I haven't done my programme notes. Surely not. I mean, <laughs> 99% of them must be written by press officers... But they or all, someone at the club. They're all basically the same format. Here we are under the floodlights on a Tuesday night and we welcome Sam Allardyce's yeah, Black I'd like to start by welcoming our opposition tonight. Yeah, yeah. It was a tough one for us last week, but we put it behind us. Yeah, It's a bit like a longer version of the post-match tweet from a player. It's like, thanks for your support, Yeah, three points tonight, and uh, if you could make it as loud as possible, that would be great. It's a bit like an appeal to the fans at the yeah. end. Although, going on from your earlier point about Wenger, Jack, I imagine he's the sort of bloke that might have wanted to write his own yeah i think like the more i think some maybe the more old-fashioned or the more like hard-working managers do do their own program notes i heard recently that one of the disappointments with pellegrini at west ham is that he didn't do his own program notes oh he, totally i can no. imagine being entirely detached yeah but i'm sure somebody like i'm sure someone like wenger would have done his own eddie howe writes his own i don't care if he does or he doesn't in my head eddie howe really sits there and earnestly writes his program notes the best bits are when you find out it's like when it's revealed in the programme notes that they haven't welcomed a particular manager. It usually sends around <laughs> it usually sends around Neil Warnock. Yeah. But um <laughs> yeah. if there's some particular issue, then you see, oh, notably haven't thanked or haven't welcomed the opposing manager for this particular game. There can often be little news stories in the programme notes because they can kind of go under the radar. They're just the, a thing that's on page three I've of the programme. But it? like you you'll see, you know, oh these had a you know uh, talks out about the owners or this that or expectations or has a go with fans yeah so I, I was on the receiving end of a program notes news story <laughs> last year when so basically in uh march february march last year qpr lost one nil sorry leeds united lost one nil at qpr mm -hmm. in the championship just as their league form started to tail off and in the post-match press conference i asked bielsa you know are you worried that your team's energy levels are falling away at this important part of the yeah. season 
And Bielsa went off on what can only be described as an epic rant uh, to me in response. You can see this on the Leeds United Amazon documentary, saying to me uh, through his interpreter, your question doesn't have any basis. It's clear you don't know what you're talking about because if there is something this team doesn't lack, it's energy. So it was a really, it was quite a funny moment, to be honest, and quite an interesting moment and revealing. And I wrote a piece about it. And then in Leeds's subsequent championship game on the weekend, uh, he re- returned to the topic in his programme notes and wrote, after the game, the energy levels of the side were questioned, which I found bemusing. Like every side in this division, we have problems, but as a team, we do not lack energy. And then Leeds United went and proved me wrong <laughs> by battering, I can't remember who it was, they battered somebody 4 or 5 nil on the, the Saturday, I think it was the Saturday 5.30 game. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash cliches and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of The Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash cliches to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, Football Cliches listeners get two extra free beers. The language that managers use when they're under pressure really interests me. Um, When they're in a kind of real sticky situation, it's it's phrases like this football club and football matches. When they really emphasise football matches, football club. And uh, I remember Sam Allardyce was the king of inserting the Barclays Premier League. And it got to the point where conspiracy theorists... Was it not said Owen that Coyle? Got, Owen Coyle did it a lot. And it, it got to the point where conspiracy theorists said that they were getting paid by Barclays yeah. to mention the sponsor of the of the league. And to me, it was just overemphasis. And, it, and it's when, when managers use things like, you know, I'm going to do it for this football club. My job is to go out there and win football matches. It's just emphasis. It's just it's a bit like pluralisation from last week. Yeah. It's basically just really ramming the point home in a football-speaky kind of way. But I haven't heard anyone ever explain why they do it. Well, Owen Coyle is still managing. He's in the Indian Super League. With, oh, are with, we uh, all? Chennai, Chennai in. I think that might be yeah. pronounced probably mm-hmm. incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is actually... The sponsor is is the hero Indian Super League. So we can, if we could find some audio of him saying the hero Indian Super League, then maybe we'll know. Owen Coyle was one of the more earnest football managers, and I think earnest football manager behaviour is never better exhibited than in their technical area. That's when we really get to see them, you know, their, the body language as, as as well as anything. And uh, one of my favourite aspects of football manager body language is the phantom header and I think it's exclusive to a very very specific set of managers. I would argue that it's specific to proper football men, where Maybe in the last minute the cross comes in and their striker's going out for a header or a goalkeeper or a centre-half who's coming up for it. And the manager will kind of instinctively, and this this is filed under kicking every ball, and it's they kind of launch themselves into a kind of phantom header on the touchline. And it must be 
subconscious and i really enjoy it i think i most associate it with managers who've played to a high level and especially yeah. ones who've played in positions that don't require a lot of heading in my mind the manager doing that is mark hughes interesting a man who would love to throw himself through a busy box ferguson and- loved a little phantom knot yeah. i think it- for me there are two standout candidates here mm. alan pardew who <laughs> i you know as we all know loves touchline movements yes. of many descriptions um <laughs> But I think above all, Martin O'Neill. I, I, I'm sure Martin O'Neill at one point did a ridiculous jumping header and ended up on his knees in the technical area. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was sort of a gymnast because yeah. I remember him with this sort of tracksuit tucked into his socks and just leaping around on such a... We're going to get onto Martin O'Neill on a separate point shortly, a very important point. Um, one thing I remember is um, in the technical area, it's kind of the mid-game equivalent of a mobile phone going off during a press conference, is if the ball flies out of play and the manager controls it with a first touch, the crowd lap it up. Oh, yeah. Apparently Roy Hodgson did this the other day. Right. Um, even at his advanced years. And so, because I saw somebody tweet about it during the Palace well, that's versus the perfect storm, game. like an old manager doing still it. Got it. Yeah. Still got it. Still got it. You've got to commit to it, though. You're sometimes <laughs> like the ball, it's fine if the ball's coming high yeah. and they've got the opportunity to trap it. The, yeah, the yeah. one touch trap, then there's yeah. the applause yeah. and a nice little pass back to the, the, the fullback <laughs> for the throw in. But if it's like coming towards you and it's like just to the side, mm. you can see sometimes they're not sure and then the ball boy goes to them and then they go for yeah, it. Yeah. You have to go. It, it, it's akin to the moment where. And I like this because it's, it's relatable. When you're walking in the park and a f- some kids are playing or a, a match is going on over there and the ball, you can see the ball might come towards you yep. and you want to go and kick it back, but you're not sure whether you should or not. But if, you're not and, if you're not wearing the correct footwear, like yeah. as soon as you, if you're not wearing trainers or boots, the ability to play football decreases by about 80%, I swear. And I think football managers have this issue, which is why I think there's a general trend towards more leisure wear when it comes to their footwear. Like Pep's basically wearing trainers now and, and Mourinho's been wearing sort of suede loafers or sort of casual shoes for a while. I just don't think we see smart shoes on managers anymore. Some, I think that's the reason. No, but so, some managers, you do occasionally see the lesser spotted manager in a genuine pair of football boots. <laughs> like Copper Monday Art. Yeah, yeah. Like, like referees, they have to wear copper. It's the absolute extension of the tracksuit manager. <laughs> Another fascinating thread of fo- uh, football manager body language is the handshake. Um, before a game, before a game is, is a different subset to the, to the handshake it's it's basically a game of one-upmanship, isn't it, Jack? He, um, I think Mourinho's really good at this. He's good at taking charge of a pre-match handshake. Yeah, and you always get like the all, both the photographers and the TV cameras yeah. gathered around. It's always best at somewhere like Stamford Bridge, where the press box is is right behind the dugouts, and you can see them all all gathered around to see is is Mourinho or whoever the manager Conte whoever going to shake hands and everyone's kind of peering over to try and see if it's going to happen and then there's always like did they shake hands yeah I think they shook hands such a huge moment especially if they've had as we've previously established a war of words I feel like the specialist when it comes to pre-match handshakes is Jose Mourinho because Obviously, the, the initial handshake is a nil-nil draw affair. There's nothing you can really dominate there. Uh, the, but then he goes for the patronising head pat, which is a crucial aspect of the pre-match handshake because it basically says, I'm better than you, whether you like it or not. So it, it's, it essentially is, I'm getting the final touch here. And that's what he thinks is very important. And then you, get, you come to post-match handshakes. And then you get into the territory of handshake gates. And we've had so many handshake gates over the year. Mark Hughes has been at the centre of yeah. 90% of them. He's the obvious one. Mark Hughes it? is brilliant because here are the here are the very here's a little potted history of Mark Hughes and handshake gates. Um Mancini didn't look at him 
when shaking his hand at the end of the game once and he got really annoyed. And to demonstrate his annoyance, he looked at Mancini and pointed at his eyes to say, you've got to look at me when you shake hands. It's the done thing. Um, he and Martin Yole once shared a post-match handshake when um, uh, Fulham beat QPR at Loftus Road. Uh, Martin Yole went for the post-match patronising head pat. And before he could make contact, Hughes brushed him away because he saw it coming. And he, and he sort of waved him saying, you don't touch my head. You don't do that to me. <laughs> and uh, Mark Hughes is just really, really... And, and then the final one, Mourinho refused to shake his hand, either actively or just wandered off. And... Hughes didn't know what to do. He was so angry. He he turned around and looked at the camera and went, he hasn't shaken my hand. He hasn't shaken my hand. <laughs> There's no one in football more annoyed about having their hand not shaken than Mark Hughes. Thoughts on handshake gates, Jack Pitbrook? Um, they're a way of establishing dominance, I suppose, yep. between managers. And that's why my personal favourite is the one which is like, I respect you so much in the knowledge that you also respect me. It usually starts off as like a hand clasp and mm. then goes into a hug. Mm. Like a big, so... And they linger in the hug for a little bit and yeah. have a little chat and we Off never the top hear of my head, the I remember, that, I remember there being one between Pochettino and Slavin Bilic a few years ago that lasted for about a week. <laughs> um, it's like mutual, yeah, like mutual respect. And that's why I think Mourinho is, because Mourinho is so clever with this kind of stuff. That's mm. why he's so good at winding people up. Like I remember there was... You know, like the 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 time where he tried to shake Roy Keane's hand before the end of a game oh, God, against Aston Villa, which obviously upset Roy Keane. There was a yeah. moment remember when Chelsea won the title, two thousand. I think it was the first Premier League title under Mourinho, yeah. when they beat Man United three 0 at home mm. at the end of that season. And Mourinho very and like everything that Mourinho does like this is calculated. It's ostentatious. Yeah. He's thought about how it's going to look to everyone, to the cameras, to people on the side of the stadium, to. To the, to the rival teams, to his own players. And he went and ostentatiously shook the hands of everyone on the Manchester United bench <laughs> on about like the 91st minute, which yeah. Chelsea 3-0 up. And yeah, like on the one hand, he could say, well, I was just being respectful of all of them. But it was also like, look how much, look how much I am on top of the world right now. I can take, <laughs> I can take time out of watching this otherwise important game to mm. shake the hands of every single person yeah. on that bench just to bestow them with my approval and my gratitude and my thanks for coming. And it's really nice that you came along to play today that, and that kind of thing. And it was like the most, for me, it's like a top 10 Mourinho moment of all time. But you can, you know that he does it to establish that sense of dominance oh, as well. Oh, completely. But Dave, do you think, do you think kind of the, the bog standard manager's insistence on shaking hands at the end of the game, this kind of hashtag classy behaviour, do you think it's standard proper football man territory? Is it just for the kind of Stuart Pierce's and... And Sam Allardyce's. Of this I think point. they clearly do place a big importance on it. Yeah, yeah. You, you sometimes see now. You do a, viewing it through that lens. Sometimes you will see Klopp or someone like that it just just disappear straight down the tunnel now yeah. without bothering. And I, I always immediately think, oh God, is it going to be a handshake gate? But no, they don't. No one. They don't care enough to a make it one. A really good handshake gate was during a North London derby, maybe about ten years ago, when Clive Allen essentially chased Arsene Wenger down the touchline after the game, demanding that he had his hand shaked. And uh, Wenger just wouldn't do it. He, I mean, Wenger was an, aggrieved by something, but he'd already shaken whoever the manager manager's hand was, but he just wouldn't shake Clive Allen's hand. What are the rules? But this is, this is exactly what yeah. Wenger said. He says, how many hands do I have to shake? What's exactly. the prescription here? Yeah. And Clive Allen was so he annoyed. Been... He said he called Wenger two Bob first... because he didn't shake his hand. <laughs> I mean, he would have been first team coach or... <laughs> Yeah. Maybe just the, maybe not even that, just the, the coach. Yeah. It's, it's mad. But sometimes that happens at the start of the game, though. Mm. If a manager is a bit late walking out, and I, I don't know why, I can see Mourinho having done this a few times, again, at Stamford Bridge. Yeah. And 
He then has to, because the other manager's already sat down on the bench. So then he has to go to that manager and then he has to sort of go all the way along the first row of the bench <laughs> because he's done one, so I've got to finish them all. There's so many staff these days. I mean, literally, <laughs> yeah. where do you stop? Um, other curious aspects of touchline uh, managerial behaviour is, well, to put it bluntly, drinking shitloads of bottled water. Um, there are some managers who every time the camera is trained on them, they will drink. I feel like the king of this is Martin O'Neill, as we mentioned before. Martin O'Neill, who expends so much energy and presumably lose, loses so much moisture through the sweat of jumping around. Uh, he's the king of drinking water. Pulis is a big water drinker. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's also handy to throw down in anger. <laughs> yeah, the poor water bottle yeah. gets kicked and thrown around like nothing else. But it's it's particularly like the small type, not like a big Lucasade, yeah, really large one. The small one, it's just nice. It's just to, and no one no one minds. We've, obviously, you know, we've got the the old. If you don't have one, you, then you pick it up to throw it down, yeah. like Mourinho did with the, the whole Lucasade. Crate of crate. Lucasade. But you should, I guess, you, if you drink so much water, maybe you won't be thirsty enough for the post match bottle of wine, which has <laughs> passed into kind of legend. It's now it's now. I feel like it was introduced by Ferguson, I guess, as a thing. And then foreign managers sort of up the stakes and start bringing in really expensive bottles of wine. I think Ancelotti is is big on the red. But it's, why is it so important that they have because, a chat? What do they talk about I over think, that wine? Afterwards? I think it exists more as like a signifier of class and respect mm. and perspective than yeah. it is like something which routinely happens yeah i don't like i don't actually know but i suspect it happens not very often i, I can't it can't be like in your average premier league game there is so much there's so much post-match media commitments yeah, yeah. uh it, you know club tv foreign rights holders uk rights holders etc away teams always in a rush to get back mm. on the bus or the train or the the coach or whatever back to their hometown so the idea that like you know, whichever two Premier League managers are there can sit and share a few glasses of wine. It's just kind of incredibly unrealistic. I'm sure it's only like, I imagine it's pre-arranged between yeah. managers who happen to get on, like, Anche you know, if it's Ancelotti and Wenger. Yeah. Or, or maybe like in an FA Cup tie where sort of a lower league manager goes up to have a little sort of um, chat with the manager and they pass on a few tips and maybe talk about a few well, lone players. Well, that happened last year. Um what, um, the start of Watford's glorious run to the FA Cup final, <laughs> of, of course, uh, began at Woking. Yep. And after the match, there was, you know, th there was a big thing about Woking and kind of how respectful Watford were playing all their first team players and the manager kind of got on and Tyler's there and it was kind of all this sort of media attention. And the Woking manager, Alan Dowson and his staff, uh, as, I, as I recall, gave Watford's uh, manager, Javi Gracia, a bottle of sangria. <laughs> um, oh my which God. I think he, he politely sort of accepted but then I was at a fans forum a few months later and someone asked him have you drunk the sangria yet and he kind of sheepishly sort of went don't really like it his yeah. working sangria <laughs> I want to talk about an aspect of football management that, that kind of passes people by a bit it's just that it's such a, it is such a curious profession and it, but it gets to the point where there is a strand of managers who I feel just purely exist to be sacked because that's what keeps them going because a manager as under pressure as he can be, is always going to be safe in the knowledge that he's going to get paid off. So I feel like there are some managers who simply exist to be sacked. And that, they did, and that is what the managerial merry-go-round is. So Jack, can you give me some examples of what you consider to be journey managers? Ian Holloway. Yeah. Sam Allardyce? Is he like a deluxe journeyman manager? Yeah, he's like the Nicholas Anelka he, of, he's actually, he's, of managers. He, he's unlike those other guys in the sense that if you get Sam in, you know he's going to improve your team. Like mm. He's improved every team he's ever worked at and mm. he's a really, really good manager. Um, 
but his shelf life is such that he does you know he does rotate between clubs we asked our we asked our listeners and uh, to suggest managers manager and club combinations that haven't happened yet but absolutely should because oh, yes. the managerial merry-go-round goes around so quickly and managers take so many jobs that, that it seems like some are just destined to be together um, various people suggested Alan Pardew at Fulham and QPR yeah Mark Hughes at West Ham or Villa I think the fact that he hasn't managed either of those is just baffling to yeah. me. James suggests Tim Sherwood. Tim Sherwood was definitely QPR manager. It's just a Wikipedia conspiracy to deny it. <laughs> yeah, so in my own notes for this, I had Sherwood at QPR. <laughs> I actually, so QPR. I didn't write... Sorry, was Mark Hughes not, not Aston Villa manager? No, no, never. Didn't he quit the Fulham job in the hope of getting the Villa job? Something like that. He did quit I, that Fulham I job, write, yeah. I was he didn't my, I, when I was doing my notes this earlier, yeah. I was going to write Hughes Villa, and then I thought, no, of course, Hughes was Villa manager. Yeah. Uh, I've also got Avram Grant at QPR. <laughs> um, Allardyce I think at, that happened. Allardyce yeah. at Stoke. Yep. Martin O'Neill at any of Everton, Newcastle, and West Ham. Mm, mm. I feel it's like a soap opera, like all the young characters will actually end up sleeping with each other at one point and I feel like that's the case for mid-table Premier League managers mid-table Premier League managers and mid-table Premier League clubs are destined to be together it's just going to happen at what stage do you think you become a journey manager? four clubs five clubs? probably when you've certainly when it's become when you realise that you're not going to get a shot at a sort of trophy winning gig because I imagine that all my I imagine lots of managers start their careers thinking well you know I'm two or three jobs away from mm. getting the Man United job mm. or playing in Europe but then it's, once you know that you're not in that realm I imagine that's when you start taking you're that's when you start looking at different in a different direction you start thinking yeah. you know what I'm I've been offered a big money to go and do this. I might as well go and do it. Like, look at AVB. Like, AVB was, AVB, after Porto, AVB was, you know, thought to be the, the kind of next great manager. Yeah. And then he went to Chelsea and obviously didn't work out there. And it hasn't it hasn't really taken that long for him to be on the kind of Zenit St. Petersburg, Shanghai yeah. SIPG, Marseille yeah. circuit. Yeah. And that is, you know, that that is what happens to lots of managers, I think, who probably so start off with high ambitions. It's when your trajectory kind of stalls, you think. Yeah. They're, they're, they're really, it's remiss of us not to mention that the obvious two standout journey managers mm. are Neil Warnock yes. and Steve Bruce, both of whom, you know, it doesn't really... F- particularly with Steve Bruce he never really does a bad job yeah he never does an outstandingly amazing job yeah. but he does he just does really good solid job enough to get another club of a similar level most of his clubs throughout his career have always been that kind of decent second tier side you know not that good top tier side and Warnock just uh, success story after success story just gets teams that are rubbish yeah. and gets them into the Premier League just by, you know with blood and thunder and this goes back to the forgotten managerial stints one of the only ones I think that hasn't worked for him in recent years he was at Leeds do you remember Warnock at Leeds? I don't remember Ooh, Warnock at Leeds I just about remember yeah. it didn't yeah. do anything maybe we're doing journey managers a bit of a disservice then perhaps a bit like you know like a journeyman midfielder like Glenn Whelan or something, maybe we just say, well, these these are managers who can do a job everywhere. They don't have a style of play that's specific to only one club, like say maybe Guardiola style. They, you know, but they can go pretty much anywhere in that kind of level of football and do a job. It's ridiculous it, to be to be snobbish about managers who've got really transferable skills and can yeah. go and like impl- and can go and be effective in lots of very different workplaces. Yeah. It's kind of such a weird. I think it's like we have this British attachment to 
I think this kind of speaks to what you're saying about Italian managers as well. We have this British attachment to if you go to a if you go to a job, you have to be there for ten years mm. and build a dynasty mm. and build a legacy, and that is the only way that you can be successful. That's bollocks, isn't it? Like, yeah. of course, if you go and work for six, twelve months at a time in different clubs, like a Warnock or lots of other people at that level, or yeah. like lots of managers in Serie A, like that is still doing your job well. I completely agree. I also think there's an inherent ageism to how we perceive football managers. I think after a certain age, you become perceived to be either past your sell-by date and kind of out of touch or just no longer employable as the next big thing. So it leads me to think, cause, because young English manager is it, it's considered to be a selling point for someone coming up through the game that, that makes them very employable because there aren't enough good English managers you know, at the very top level. But at what age do you stop becoming, stop being a young manager? What is the cutoff point? Because you know, an old, a veteran footballer is probably, what, 32 what age does a manager stop being young? I, I, you, you have, you're wearing the expression of a man who's been asked this for the first time in his life. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you're in your 30s, I think, I think once you... You think 40 is not young for a manager? No, I think you... Yeah. Wow. So Lampard's, a, think so. Lampard's not a young manager then? Well, well, I disagree. I think, yeah. I think people yeah. are very generous in extending young manager status or young English manager status mm. to managers well into their 40s. I I would say 45, 46 because then you've been you're only about 10 years removed from your playing career if you had one. I think it's about That's duration what... though because if you if you're a young manager you know so Julian Nagelsmann who was mm. 29 was he when he got the Hoffenheim gig I think okay. so, which is absolutely absurd it's a different kettle of fish if you haven't played like, like, I mean if you've gone like directly into coaching and, and uh, decided that that's your yeah. job but 10 I'm, years into his career though he can't be described as a young manager but he'll only be 39 I, I agree with you I agree annoyingly I agree with and you and I also think from a personal perspective it de- entirely depends on how old you are so I think any <laughs> I, I'm a mate if anyone's a manager and they're younger than me I just can't I just can't accept it <laughs> maybe there, there is a kind of there is a sweet spot for how old a, a manager and the duration the, the, the gap between your old, the oldest player in the squad and how old the manager is mm-hmm. is an interesting dynamic oh yeah yeah having a having a player older than you must be weird like a like a stepdad is only sort yeah. of 10 years older than you or something like that. I don't think that's a strange analogy to use, but I've, I've said it anyway. <laughs> An inevitable truth about being on the managerial merry-go-round is that one day you're going to get sacked. And I feel like the process of being sacked is is bathes in cliche as well. You have the club statement, which follows the exact same template every single time. Then a the manager has a little short break to kind of reset himself. Then they're interviewed in their garden on Sky Sports News. And all managers have the same garden. Fairly well kept, medium to large, Football goal in the background. Hedge as well. Big yeah. hedges. Oh, yeah. Privacy hedges. Yeah. But they have lots of little football goals in the back of the yeah. gardens. Who uses that? Because you're like, what, you 60? Big, big difference between the back garden interview and the front garden interview. I haven't seen a front garden interview. Well, front garden interview, you're like Sam Allardyce. You have to come out and face the baying <laughs> oh, yeah. mob. That's if you've done something <laughs> terrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Front garden for bad news, back garden for good news. Yeah. That's that's the rule. Um, after that, you go on goals on Sunday. So Pardew's been on goals on Sunday, as far as I can see, 4,008 times. And there's always like a slightly patronising, you're looking really well, Paul Lambert. <laughs> yeah, keeping well, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's at that stage that they say they're itching to get back into the game. You, you won't get a job unless you've declared publicly that you're itching. They don't even say to it. the game. It's just, yeah, just can't wait to get back in. Yeah, just, yeah, just as if they've just been permanently outside yeah. since. Then they get their job and they are unveiled. Not literally, sadly. I wish managers were just presented under a veil. Uh, and then, then you just go through the process again. You, get, you, you know, you have the dreaded vote of confidence. 
There are only two things in football that are dreaded, the vote of confidence and a metatarsal. Uh, then you have six games to save your job. It's always six. I feel like this is the, the League Managers Association have set this as a threshold. And then the manager will declare, I've never walked away from anything in my life and I'm not going to start now. And then they they are soon out of a job. And then you get to the saddest aspect of this all, which is the the list of odds for a next manager for a job. And it's always just the sad, same sad names. Kerbishly, just constantly 17 to 1 to become the next manager. I feel as a Watford fan, you must be the mo- you must be seriously familiar with perusing the next manager well, odds for your club. Yeah, but I find it absolutely bewildering that anyone would ever mention Alan Kerbishley in this conversation ever. <laughs> he has not been... In, when was he last in a job? Was doesn't it, matter. He had like a couple of weeks at Fulham, didn't he, randomly, a few years, like about five or six years ago. But before that, it was West Ham. Like he hasn't, he's not been anywhere near a job. But everyone still goes, "Oh, Kerbishley's been linked with." Raises it. a very important question: Do managers actually have to retire? Well, a lot of them seem to exist in this kind of nether space where you you're not in work. You don't need, unlike a normal person, you don't need to work <laughs> yeah. for money. Yep. So you've always got half an eye on, like, oh, maybe I can, maybe I would like to be manager New York City FC or. <laughs> Houston Dynamo or like a kind of consult consulting role at Cardiff City or whatever like there are so many jobs that you could get that quick you summer might, at the Africa Cup you, of Nations yeah right exactly that you might you could get that you might want that you don't want to rule yourself out of and yet you're not like actively looking for jobs going on LinkedIn every day calling up recruiters and that means that I think most man, lots of people <laughs> seem to exist in that space yeah Harry Redknapp exists in that space. Alan mm. Kerbishley. David O'Leary's been in that I space think, since I think the age of like 47. Has, Redknapp has since left that space and gone into the sort of celebrity sphere. Yeah, when, he, once he went into the jungle, that, he's never looking back. Yeah, he's never he, getting back into yeah, football. Once you've been Probably, on I'm a Celebrity, yeah. you cannot credibly manage a, a football team. We, we had Chris Hewton in recently to do an interview on the Austin Chapman podcast. And we, mm. were, we were asking him the natural question, what you do, you know, what you're up to, how are you keeping busy? And it was literally like... Well, there was a there was a you know a bit a bit of a element of sadness to it really. Yeah. He was quite earnestly telling us, well, look, you know, I'm desperate to get back in. I've had offers, but, you know, but he just said, oh, every day, day in day out, I, I can't, I just can't do nothing. I can't yeah. stay at home. So he, he said right. he just used to go to the library, and like watch coaching, man, you know, look at coaching manuals, but watch watch players like just. Gen oh, up God. on so he was ready and like have a chat with uh, and it's same same for when when Hodgson got sacked as England manager yeah he, there was reports saying that well he said that him and Ray Lewington well they would just meet up every Monday morning mm. just as like you know like a team meeting just to make sure that we're, we're ready when just the time through, comes go through the laminated set piece we're folder ready. and yeah just have a look at the get weekends games like there must be that when you're not of the sufficient mind to just relax spend time with the family with the wife play golf do whatever yeah. It must be a really strange situation because you, you're so used to this high tempo, you know, adrenaline filled environment. Mm. Then you, all of a sudden you're just at home every day doing nothing. Well, I, I don't know. What, I don't want to end on this sad, poignant <laughs> note. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna end on an exciting note. This, this is a um, first to the buzzer cliche quiz. Are you ready? Yeah. Question one: What do international managers tend to miss about club jobs? The day to day involvement. 1-0 to Jack Pitbrook. Question two. What is the only way a manager can move around his technical area? Prowl. 2-0 to Jack Pitbrook. <sighs> so, th- so now this, this is the third question. It's kind of a waste of time now, but uh, I'm going to have to say it anyway. What is the only method by which caretaker managers can express their interest informally in a job? Throw the hat into the ring. 3-0! <laughs> <laughs> It's almost like you weren't even up for it. <laughs> Absolute just didn't even care. A route? I'd like to place on record my thanks for your efforts. Wish you well for the future. 
and an announcement on the next episode will be made as soon as possible.